The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson. Chapter 1. Story of the Door. Mr. Utterson, the lawyer, was a man of rugged countenance that was never lighted by smile. Cold, scanty, and embarrassed in discourse, backward in sentiment, lean, long, dusty, dreary, and yet somehow lovable. At friendly meetings, something eminently human beckoned from his eye, something indeed which never found its way into his talk, but which spoke not only with the silent symbols of the after-dinner face, but more often and loudly in the acts of his life. He was astir with himself, and though he enjoyed the theater, had not crossed the doors of one for 20 years. But he had an approved tolerance of others, sometimes wandering almost with envy at the high pressure of spirits involved in their misdeeds, and in any extremity inclined to help rather than to reprove. I incline to Cain's heresy, he used to say quaintly. I let my brother go to the devil in his own way. In this character, it was frequently his fortune to be the last reputable acquaintance and the last good influence in the lives of down-going men. And to such as these, so long as they came about his chambers, he never marked a shade of change in his demeanor. No doubt the feat was easy to Mr. Utterson, for he was undemonstrative at the best, and even his friendship seems to be founded in a similar Catholicity of good nature. It is the mark of a modest man to accept his friendly circle ready-made from the hands of opportunity, but that was the lawyer's way. His friends were those of his own blood, for those whom he had known the longest. His affections, like ivy, were the growth of time. They implied to aptness in the object. Hence, no doubt, the bond that united him to Mr. Richard Enfield, his distant kinsman, the well-known man about town. It was a nut to crack for many that these two could see in, what these two could see in each other or what subject they could find in common. It was reported by those who encountered them in their Sunday walks that they said nothing, looked singularly dull, and would hail with obvious relief the appearance of a friend. For all that, the two men put the greatest store by these excursions counted them the chief jewel of each week and had only set aside occasions of pleasure but even resisted the calls of business that they might enjoy them uninterrupted. It chanced on one of these rambles that their way led them down a street in a busy quarter of London. The street was small and was called quiet but it drove a thriving trade on the weekday. The inhabitants were all doing well, it seemed, and all impulsuously hoping to do better still and laying about the surplus of their grains and quietry so that the shop fronts stood along that thoroughfare with an air of invitation like rows of smiling saleswomen. Even on Sunday, when it veiled its more florid charms and lay comparatively empty of passage, the street shone out in contrast to its dingy neighborhood like a fire in a forest, and with its freshly painted shutters, well-polished brasses, and general cleanliness, the gaiety of note instantly caught them pleased the eye of the stranger. 
two doors from one corner on the left hand going east. The line was broken by the entry of a court, and just at that point a certain sinister block of buildings thrust forward its gable on the street. It was two stories high, showed no window, nothing but a door on the lower story and a blind forehead of discolored wall on the upper, and bore in every feature the marks of prolonged and sordid negligence. The door, which was equipped with neither bell nor knocker, was blistered and disdained. Tramp slouched into the recess and struck matches on the panels. Children kept shop along the steps. The schoolboy had tried his knife on the moldings, and for close on a generation, no one had appeared to drive away these random visitors or to repair their ravages. Mr. Enfield and the lawyer were on the other side of the by street when they came abreast of the entry and the former lifted his cane and pointed. Did you ever remark on that door? He asked. And when his companion had replied in the affirmative, it is connected in my mind, added he, with a very odd story. Indeed, said Mr. Utterson with a slight change of voice. And what was that? Well, it was this way, returned Mr. Enfield. I was coming home from some place at the end of the world, about three o'clock of a black winter morning, and my way lay through a part of the town where there was literally nothing to be seen but lamps. Street after street, and all the folks asleep, street after street, all lighted up as if for a procession, and all as empty as a church till at last I got into that state of mind when a man listens and listens and begins to long for the sight of a policeman. All at once I saw two figures, one a little man who was stumping along eastward at a good walk, and the other a girl of maybe eight or ten who was running as hard as she was able down a cross street. Well, sir, the two ran into another, naturally enough, at the corner. And then came the horrible part of the thing, for the man trampled calmly over the girl's body and left her screaming on the ground. It sounds nothing to hear, but it was hellish to see. It wasn't like a man. It was like some horrible juggernaut. I gave a view, hello, took to my heels, collared my gentleman and brought him back to where he was already quiet a group about the screaming child he was perfectly cool and made no resistance but gave me a look so ugly that i thought out the sweat on me running the people who had turned out were the girl's own family and pretty soon the doctor for whom she'd been sent put in his appearance well, the child was not much the worse, more frightened, according to Sawbones, and there, you might have supposed, would be an end to it. But there was one curious circumstance. I had taken a loathing to my gentleman at first sight. So had the child's family, which was only natural. But the doctor's case was what struck me. He was the usual cut-and-dry apothecary 
of no particular age and color with a strong Edinburgh accent and about as emotional as a bagpipe. Well, sir, he was like the rest of us. Every time he looked at my prisoner, I saw the sawbones turn sick and white with the desire to kill him. I knew what was in his mind just as he knew what was in mine. And killing being out of the question, we did the next best. We told the man, we told the man we could and would make such a scandal out of this as should make his name stink from one end of London to the other. If he had any friends or any credit, we understood that he should lose them. And all the time, as we were pitching it in red hot, we were keeping the women off him as best we could, for they were as wild as harpies. I never saw such a circle of hateful faces that there was this man in the middle with a kind of black sneering coolness, frightened too, I could see that, but carrying it off, sir, if choose to make capital out of this accident, he said, I'm naturally helpless, no gentleman but wishes to avoid a scene, says he, name your figure. Well, we screwed him up to a hundred pounds for the child's family. He would have clearly liked to stick out, but there was something about the lot of us that meant mischief, and at last he struck. The next thing was to get the money, and where do you think he carried us but to that place with the door? Whipped out a key, went in, presently came back with a matter of ten pounds in gold and a check for the balance on counts drawn payable to bearer and signed with a name I can't mention, though it's one of the points of my story. But it was the name of a least very well-known and often printed. The figure was stiff, but the signature was good. For more than that, it was only genuine. I took the liberty of pointing out to my gentleman the whole business looked apocryptal, and that the man does not, in real life, walk into a cellar door at four in the morning and come out of it with another man's check for close to a hundred pounds. He was quite easy and sneering. Set your mind at rest, says he. I will stay with you till the banks open and cash the check myself. So we all set off, the doctor, the child's father, and our friend and myself, and passed the rest of the night in my chambers. And the next day, when we had breakfast, went into a body of the bank. I gave the check myself and said I had every reason to believe it was a forgery. Not a bit of it. The check was genuine. Tut, tut, said Mr. Utterson. I see you feel as I do, said Mr. Enfield. Yes, it's a bad story, for my man was a fellow that nobody could have, do- could have to do with. A really detestable man. But the person that drew the check in this very pink of the property celebrated too, and, what makes it worse, one of our fellows who do what they call good. Blackmail, I suppose, an honest man paying through the nose for some of the capers of his youth. Blackmail house is what I call that place with the door. In consequence, though even that you know is far from explaining all, he added, and with the words fell into a vein of musing. 
From this, he recalled by Mr. Utterson, asking rather suddenly, And you don't know if the drawer of the check lives there? A likely place, isn't it? returned Mr. Edenfield. But I happen to have noticed his address. He lives in some square or other. And you never asked about the place with the door, said Mr. Utterson. No, sir, I said. No, sir, I said, delicacy, was the reply. I feel very strongly about putting questions. It partakes too much of the style of the day of judgment. You start a question and it's like starting a stone. You sit quietly on top of the hill and away the stone goes, staring at others. And presently some bland old bird the last you would have thought of, is knocked on the head with his own back garden, and the family have to change their name. No, sir, I make it a rule of mine. The more it looks like Queer Street, the less I ask. A very good rule, too, said the lawyer. But I have studied the place for myself, continued Mr. Enfield. It seems scarcely a house. There is no other door, and nobody goes in or out of that one but once in a great while the gentleman of my adventure there are three windows looking on the court on the first floor none below the windows are always shut but they're clean and then there's a chimney which is generally smoking so somebody must live there and yet it's not so sure for the buildings are so packed together about this court and it's hard to say whether one ends and another begins. The pair walked on again for a while in silence, and then, Enfield, said Mr. Utterson, it's a good rule of yours. Yes, I think it is, returned Enfield. But for all that, continued the lawyer, there's one point I want to ask. I want to ask the name of that man who walked over the child. Well, said Mr. Enfield, I can't see what harm it would do. It was a man of the name of Hyde. Hmm, said Mr. Utterson. What sort of a man is he to see? He's not easy to describe. There's something wrong with his appearance, something displeasing, something downright detestable. I never saw a man so disliked, and yet I scarcely know why. He must be deformed somewhere and gives a strong feeling of deformity, although I couldn't specify the point. He is an extraordinary looking man, and yet I really can name nothing out of the way. No, sir, I make no hand of it. I can't describe him, and it's not want of memory, for I declare I can see him this moment. Mr. Utterson again walked some way in silence and obviously under a weight of consideration. You're sure he used a key? He inquired at last. My dear sir, began Enfield, surprised out of himself. Yes, I know, said Utterson. I know it seems strange. The fact is, if I do not ask the name of the other party, it's because I know it already. You see, Richard, your tale has gone home. If you've been inexact in any point, you'd better correct it. I think you might have warned me, returned the other with a touch of sullenness. But I have been penitentially exact. 
as you call it. The fellow had a key, and what's more, he has it still. I saw him use it not a week ago. Mr. Utterson sighed deeply, but said never a word, and the young man presently resumed. Here's another lesson to say nothing, said he. I am ashamed of my long tongue. Let us make a bargain never to refer to this again. With all my heart, said the lawyer. I shake hands on that, Richard. Think about it. What kind of impression does Mr. Hyde make on the people who meet him? Why doesn't Mr. Enfield try to find out more about Mr. Hyde? Stay tuned for Chapter 2. Chapter 2. Search for Mr. Hyde. That evening, Mr. Utterson came home to his bachelor house in somber spirits and sat down to dinner without relish. It was his custom of a Sunday when his meal was over to sit close by the fire, a volume of some dry divinity on his reading desk, until the clock of the neighboring church rang out the hour of twelve when he would go soberly and gratefully to bed. On this night, however, as soon as the cloth was taken away, he stood up a candle and went into his business room. There, he opened his safe, took from the most private part of it a document endorsed on the envelope as Dr. Jekyll's will, and sat down with a clouded brow to study its contents. The will was holograph for Mr. Utterson, though he took charge of it now that it was made, had refused to lend least assistance in the making of it, it provided not only that in the case of the deceased of Dr. Henry Jekyll, M.D., D.C.L., L.L.D., F.R.S., etc., all of his possessions were to the past to the hands of friend and benefactor Edward Hyde, but that in case of Dr. Jekyll's disappearance or unexplained absence for any period exceeding three calendar months, he said Edward Hyde should step in the said heckle Henry Jekyll's shoes without further delay and free from the burden or obligation beyond the payment of a few small sums to the members of the doctor's household. This document had long been the lawyer's eyesore. It offended him both as lawyer and as a lover of the sane and customary sides of life to whom the fanciful is the immodest. And hitherto it was his ignorance of Mr. Hyde that had swelled his indignation. Now, by a sudden turn, it was his knowledge. It was already bad enough that when the name was but a name of which he could learn no more, it was worse when it began to be clothed upon with detestable attributes and out of shifting insubstantial mists that had so long baffled his eye. There leaped up the sudden, definite, presentment of a fiend. I thought it was madness, he said, as he replaced the obnoxious paper in the safe, and now I begin to fear it is disgrace. With that, he blew out the candle, put on a great coat, and set forth in the direction of Cavendish Square, that citadel of medicine where his friend, 
the great Dr. Lanyon had his house and received his crowning patients. If anyone knows, it'll be Landon, he thought. The solemn butler knew and welcomed him. He was subjected to no stage of delay, but ushered direct from the door to the dining room where Dr. Lanyon sat alone. This was a hearty, healthy, dapper, red-faced gentleman with a shock of hair prematurely white and a boisterous and decided manner. At sight of Mr. Utterson, he sprang up from his chair and welcomed him with both hands. The gentility was the way of the man and somewhat theatrical to the eye, but it reposed on genuine feeling and these two were old friends, old mates, both at school and college, both thorough respecters of themselves and each other. And what does not always follow, men who thoroughly enjoyed each other's company. After a little rambling talk, the lawyer led up on the subject which was so disagreeably preoccupied his mind. I suppose, Lanyon, he said, you and I must be the two oldest friends that Henry Jekyll has. I wish the friends were younger, chuckled Dr. Lanyon, but I suppose we are, and what of that? I see little of him now. Indeed, said Utterson, I thought you had a bond of common interest. We had, was the reply, but it's more than ten years since Henry Jekyll became too fanciful for me. He began to go wrong, wrong in the mind. And though, of course, I continue to take an interest in him for old sake's sake, as they say, I see I've seen very little of the man. Such unscientific balderdash, added the doctor, flushing suddenly purple. What of a strange Damon and Pythias? This little spirit of temper was somewhat of a relief to Mr. Utterson. They have only deferred on some point of science, he thought. And being a man of no scientific passions, except in the matter of conveyancing, he even added, it is nothing worse than that. He gave his friend a few seconds to recover his composure, and then he approached the question he had come to put. Did you ever come across a protege of his? Uh, one Hyde, he asked. Hyde, repeated Lanyon. Nope, never heard of him since my time. That was the amount of information the lawyer carried back with him to the great dark bed on which he tossed to and fro until the small hours of the morning began to grow large. It was a night of little ease to his toiling mind, toiling in the mere darkness and besieged by questions. Six o'clock struck on the bells of the church was so considerably near to Dr. Utterson's dwelling, and still he was digging at the problem. Hitherto it had touched him on the intellectual side alone, but now his imagination also engaged, or rather enslaved, and as he lay and tossed in the gross darkness of the night in the curtained room, Mr. Enfield's tale went by before his mind in a scroll of lighted pictures. He would be aware of great field of lamps, of a nocturnal city, then of the figure of a man walking swiftly, then of a child running from the doctors, and then these met, and that human juggernaut trod the child down and passed on regardless of her screams, or else he would see a room in a rich house where his friend lay asleep, dreaming and smiling in his dreams, 
and the door of that room would open and the curtains of the bed plucked apart, the sleeper recalled, and lo, there would stand by his side a figure to whom power was given, and even at that dead hour he must rise and do its bidding. The figure in those two phases haunted the lawyer all night, and if at any time he dozed over, was but to see it glide more stealthily through the sleeping houses, or move the more swiftly and still the more swiftly, even to dizziness, the wider labyrinths of lamp-lighted city, and at every street corner a crushed child and leave her screaming. And still the figure had no face by which he might know it. Even in his dreams it had no face or one that baffled him and melted before his eyes, and thus it was that there sprung up a grew apace in the lawyer's mind, a singularly strong, almost inordinate curiosity to behold the features of the real Mr. Hyde. If he could once set eyes on it, he thought the mystery would lighten and perhaps roll altogether away as was the habit of the mysterious things when well examined. He might see a reason for his friend's strange preference or bondage, call it what you please, and even for the starting clause of the will. At least it would be a face worth seeing, a face of a man who is without bowels of mercy, a face which had but shown itself to rise up the mind of impressionable Enfield, a spirit of enduring hatred. From that time forward, Mr. Utterson began to haunt the door in the, sh- in the by street of shops. In the morning before office hours, at noon when business was a plenty and time scarce, at night under the face of the fog city moon, by all lights at all hours of solitude or concourse, the lawyer was to be found on his chosen post. If he be Mr. Hyde, he thought, I shall be Mr. Seek. And at last his patience was rewarded. It was a fine dry night, frost in the air, the streets as clean as a ballroom floor, and the lamps unshaken by any wind, drawing a regular pattern of light and shadow. By 10 o'clock, when the shops were closed, and by street was very solitary and in spite of the low growl of london from all around very silent small sounds carried far and domestic sounds out of the houses were clearly audible on either side of the roadway and the rumor of the approach of any passenger preceded him by a long time mr utterson had been some minutes at his post when he was aware of an odd light footstep drawing near. In the course of his nightly patrols, he had long grown accustomed to the quaint effect of which the footfalls of a single person, while he was still a great way off, suddenly spring out distinct from the vast hum and clatter of the city. Yet his his attention had never before been so sharply or decisively arrested, and it was with a strong superstitious provision of success that he withdrew into the entry of the court. The steps drew swiftly nearer and swelled out suddenly louder as they turned the end of the street. 
The lawyer, looking forth from the entry, could soon see what manner of man he had to deal with. He was small and very plainly dressed, and the look of him, even at the distance, went somehow strongly against the watcher's inclination, but he made straight for the door, crossing the roadway to save time, and as he came he drew the key from his pocket like one approaching home. Mr. Utterson stepped out and touched him on the shoulder as he passed. Mr. Hyde, I think. Mr. Hyde shrunk back with a hissing intake of his breath, but his fear was only momentary, and though he did not look the lawyer in the face, he answered coolly enough, That is my name. What do you want? I see you're going in, returned the lawyer. I'm an old friend of Dr. Jekyll's, Mr. Utterson of Gaunt Street. You must have heard my name, and meeting you so conveniently, I thought you might admit me. You will not find Dr. Jekyll. He is not home, replied Mr. Hyde, blowing in the key. And then suddenly, but still without looking up, How did you know me? he asked. On your side, said Mr. Utterson. Uh, will you do me a favor? Wish with pleasure, replied the other. What shall it be? Will you let me see your face? asked the lawyer. Mr. Hyde appeared to hesitate, and then, as if upon some sudden reflection, fronted about it with an air of defiance, and the pair stared at each other pretty fixedly for a few seconds. Now, I shall know you again, said Mr. Utterson. It may be useful. Yes, returned Mr. Hyde. It is as well we have met, and uh, apropos, you should have had my address. And he gave a number of street in Soho. Good grief, thought Mr. Utterson. Can he, too, have been thinking of the will? But he kept his feelings to himself and only grunted in acknowledgment of the address. And now, said the other, how did you know me? By description. Whose description? We have common friends, said Mr. Utterson. Common friends, echoed Mr. Hyde a little hoarsely. Who are they? Well, Jekyll, for instance, said the lawyer. He never told you, cried Hyde with a flush of anger. I did not think you would lie. Come, said Mr. Utterson, that is not fitting language. The other snarled aloud into a savage laugh, and the next moment, with extraordinarily quickness, he had unlocked the door and disappeared in the house. The lawyer stood a while when Mr. Hyde had left him, the picture of disetiquette. Then he began slowly to mount the street, pausing every step or two and putting his hand to his brow like a man in mental perplexity. The problem he was thus debating as he walked was one of a class that had rarely solved. Mr. Hyde was pale and dwarfish, gave an impression of deformity without any nameable malformation. He had a, display a displeasing smile himself to a lawyer with a sort of murderous mixture of timidity and boldness. He spoke with a husky, whispering, and somewhat broken voice. All these were points against him. 
but not all of these together could explain the hitherto unknown disgust, loathing, and fear with which Mr. Utterson regarded him. There must be something else, said the perplexed gentleman. There is something more. If I could find a name for it, God bless me, the man seems hardly human. Something Trojanic, shall we say, or can it be the old story of Dr. Fell, or is it mere radiance of a foul soul that thus transpires through and transfigures its clay continent? Hmm, the last I think, oh no, poor Mr. Old Harry Jekyll, if ever I read evil signature on a face, it was on that of your new friend. Chapter 2 continued. Round the corner from the by street, there was a square of ancient, handsome houses, now for the most part decayed from their high estate and let in flats and chambers to all sorts of conditions for men, map engravers, architects, shady lawyers, and the agents of obscure enterprises. One house, however, second from the corner, was still occupied entire, and at the door of this, which bore a great air of wealth and comfort, though it was now plunged in darkness except for the fanlight, Mr. Utterson stopped and knocked. A well-dressed elderly servant opened the door. "'Is Dr. Jekyll at home, Poole?' asked the lawyer. "'I will see, Mr. Utterson,' said Poole, admitting the visitor, as he spoke into a large, low-roofed, comfortable hall paved with flags, warmed after the fashion of a country house by a bright open fire and furnished with costly cabinets of oak. Will you wait here by the fire, sir, or shall I give you a light in the dining room? Here, thank you, said the lawyer, and he drew near and I leaned on the tall fender. This hall in which he was left alone was pet fancy his friend's doctors. The Utterson himself won't to speak of it as pleasant room as the most pleasant room in London, but tonight there was a shudder in his blood. The face of Hyde sat heavy in his memory. He felt what is rare with him, a nausea, a distaste of life. And in the gloom of his spirits, he seemed to read a menace in the flickering of the firelight on the polished cabinets and the uneasy starting of a shadow on the roof. He was ashamed of his relief when Poole presently returned to announce that Dr. Jekyll had gone out. I saw Mr. Hyde go in by the old dissecting room door, Poole, he said. Is that right, when Dr. Jekyll is from home? Quite right, Mr. Utterson, sir, replied the servant. Mr. Hyde has a key. Your master seems to repose a great deal of trust in that young man, Poole. Yes, sir, he do indeed, said Poole. We have all orders to obey him. I do not think I ever met Mr. Hyde, asked Utterson. Oh, dear, no, sir, he never dines here, replied the butler. Indeed, we see very little of him on this side of the house. He mostly comes and goes by the laboratory. Well, good night, Poole. Good night, Mr. Utterson. And the lawyer set out homeward on a very heavy heart. Poor Harry Jekyll, he thought.
My mind misgives me. He is in deep waters. He was wild when he was young, a long while ago to be sure. But in the law of God, there is no statute of limitations. I must be that, the ghost of some old sin, the cancer of some concealed disgrace, punishment coming years after memory has forgotten and self-love condoned the fault. And the lawyer, scared by the thought, brooded a while on his own past, groping in all the corners of memory, lest by chance some jack-in-the-box of an old inequity should leap to light there. His past, fairly blameless. Few men could read the roles of their life with less apprehension, yet he was humbled to the dust by the many ill things he had done and raised up again into a sober and fearful gratitude by the many that it had come so near to doing yet avoided. And then, by a return of his former subject, he conceived a spark of hope. This master Hyde, if he were studied, must have secrets of his own, black secrets. By the look of him, secrets compared to which poor Jekyll's worst would be like sunshine. Things cannot continue as they are. It turns me cold to think of this creature, stealing like a thief to Harry's bedside. Poor Harry, what awakening! And the anger of it! For if Hyde suspects the existence of the will, hmm, he may grow impatient to inherit. I, I must put my shoulder to the wheel if Jekyll will be let, Ill, will but let me. If Jekyll will only let me. For once more he saw before his mind's eye, as clear as a transparency, the strange clauses of the will. Chapter 3. Dr. Jekyll was quite at ease. A fortnight later, by excellent good fortune, the doctor gave one of his pleasant dinners to some five or six old cronies, all intelligent, reputable men, and all judges of good wine, and Mr. Utterson so contrived that he remained behind after the others had departed. This was no new arrangement, but the thing that had befallen many scores of times. Where Utterson was liked, he was well liked. Hosts loved to detain the dry lawyer when the light-hearted and loose-tongued had already their footing on the threshold. They liked to sit a while in his unobtrusive company, practicing for solitude, sobering their minds in the man's rich silence, after the expense and strain of their gaiety. To this rule, Dr. Jekyll was no exception, and he now sat on the opposite side of the fire, a large, well-made, smooth-faced man of smooth-faced man of fifty, with something of a slyish cast, perhaps, but every mark of capacity and kindness. You could see by his looks that he cherished for Mr. Utterson a sincere and warm infection. I've been wanting to speak to you, Jekyll, began the latter. You know that will of yours. 
A close observer might have gathered that the topic was distasteful, but the doctor carried it off gaily. My poor Utterson, said he, you are unfortunate in such a client. I never saw a man so distressed as you by my will, unless it were that hide-bound pendant laden at what he called a scientific heresy. Oh, I know he's a good fellow. You needn't frown, an excellent fellow, and I always mean to see more of him. But a hide-bound pendant for all that ignorant, blanchant pendant. I was never more disappointed in any man than than Landon. You know, I never approved of it, pursued Utterson ruthlessly, disregarding the fresh topic. My will, yes, certainly, I know that, said the doctor, a trifle sharply. You have told me so. Well, I tell you so again, continued the lawyer. I've been learning something of young Hyde. The large, handsome-faced Dr. Jekyll grew pale to the very lips, and there came a blackness about his eyes. I do not care to hear more, he said. This is a matter I thought we had agreed to drop. What I heard was abominable, said Utterson. I can, I can take no change. You do not understand my position, returned the doctor, with a certain incoherency of manner. I am painfully situated, Utterson. My position is a very strange, a very strange one. It is one of those affairs that cannot be mended by talking. Jekyll, said Utterson, you know me. I'm a man to be trusted. Make a clean breast of this confidence, and I make no doubt I can get you out of it. My good Utterson, said the doctor, this is very good of you. It's downright good of you, and I cannot find words to thank you in. I believe you fully. I would trust you before any man alive, I before myself, if I could make the choice. But indeed, it isn't what you fancy. It is not so bad as that. And just to put your good heart at rest, I will tell you one thing. The moment I choose, I can be rid of Mr. Hyde. I give you my hand upon that, and I thank you again and again. And I will just add one little word, Utterson, that I'm sure you'll take in good part. This is a private matter, and I beg of you to let it sleep. Utterson reflected a little, looking into the fire. I have no doubt you are perfectly right, he said at last, getting to his feet. Well... But since you have touched upon this business, and for the last time, I hope, continued the doctor, there is one point I should like you to understand. I have really a very great interest in poor Hyde. I know you've seen him. He told me so, and I fear he was rude. But I do sincerely take a great and very great interest in that young man. And if I am taken away, Utterson, I wish you to promise me that you will bear with him and get his rights for him. I think you would, if you knew all, and it would be the weight off my mind if you would promise. I can't pretend that I shall ever like him, said the lawyer. I don't ask that, pleaded Jekyll, laying his hand upon the other's arm. I only ask for justice. I only ask you to help him for my sake when I am no longer here. Utterson heaved an irrepressible sigh. Well, he said, I promise. Think about it. 
What does Mr. Utterson try to discuss with Dr. Jekyll? What promise does Mr. Utterson make to Dr. Jekyll? Stay tuned. Chapter 4 The Karu Murder Case Nearly a year later, in the month of October, 1800, London was startled by a crime of singular ferocity and rendered all the more notable by the high position of the victim. The details were few and startling. A maidservant, living alone in a house not far from the river, had gone upstairs to bed about eleven. Although a fog rolled over the city in the small hours, the early part of the night was cloudless, and the lane which the maid's window overlooked was brilliantly lit by a full moon. It seemed she was romantically given, for she sat down upon her box, which stood immediately under the window, and fell into a dream of musing. Never, she used to say with streaming tears when she narrated that experience, Never had she felt more at peace with all men or thought more kindly of the world as when she so sat she became aware of the aged and beautiful gentleman with white hair drawing near along the lane and advancing to meet him another very small gentleman to whom at first she paid less attention. When they had come within speech, which was just under the maid's eye, The older man bowed and costed the other with a very pretty manner of politeness. It did not seem as if the subject of his address were of great importance. Indeed, from his pointing, it sometimes appeared as if they were only inquiring this way. But the moon shone on his face as he spoke, and the girl was pleased to watch it. It seemed to breathe such an innocent and old-world kindness of disposition yet with something high, too, as of a well-founded self-content. Presently, her eyes wandered to the other, and she was surprised to recognize him, a certain Mr. Hyde, whom had once visited her master, and for whom she had conceived a dislike. He had in his hand a heavy cane, with which he was trifling, but he answered never a word and seemed to listen with an ill-contained impatience. And then all of a sudden he broke out in the great flame of anger, stamping with his foot, brandishing the cane, and carrying on, as the maid described it, like a madman. The old gentleman took a step back with the air of one very much surprised and trifle hurt, and at that Mr. Hyde broke out all bounds and clubbed him to the earth, and the next moment, with ape-like fury, he was trampling his victim underfoot and hailing down a storm of blows, under which the bones were audibly shattered and the body jumped upon the roadway, and the horror of these sights and sounds the maid fainted. It was two o'clock when she came to herself and called the police. The murderer was gone long ago, but there lay his victim in the middle of the lane, incredibly mangled. The stick with which the deed had been done, although it was some rare and very tough and heavy wood, 
had broken in the middle under the stress of the intense cruelty, and one splintered half had rolled in the neighboring gutter, the other, without a doubt, had been carried away by the murderer. A purse and a gold watch were found upon the victim, but no cards or papers except a sealed and stamped envelope, which he had been probably carrying to the post and which bore the name and address of Mr. Utterson. This was brought to the lawyer the next morning before he was out of bed, and he had no sooner seen it and been told the circumstances than he shot up a solemn lip. I shall say nothing till I have seen the body, he said. This may be very serious. Have the kindness to wait while I dress. And with the same grave countenance, he hurried through his breakfast and drove to the police station whither the body had been carried. As soon as he came to the cell, he nodded. Yes, I recognize him. I'm sorry to say that this is Sir Danvers Carew. Good grief, sir, exclaimed the officer. Is it possible? And the next moment his eye lighted up with professional ambition. This will make a deal of noise, he said, and perhaps you can help us to the man. And he briefly narrated what the maid had seen and showed the broken stick. Mr. Utterson had already quailed at the name of Hyde, but when the stick was laid before him, he no doubt could doubt it no longer. Broken and battered as it was, he recognized it for the one that he himself had presented many years ago before Henry Jekyll. Is this Mr. Hyde a person of small stature? He inquired. Particularly small and particularly wicked looking is what the maid calls him, said the officer. Mr. Utterson reflected and then raising his head, if you'll come with me in my cab, he said, I think I can take you to his house. It was by this time, about nine in the morning, in the first fog of the season, the great chocolate-colored pal lowered over a heaven had the wind so continually changing and routing these embattled vapors so that the cab crawled from street to street. Mr. Utterson beheld a marvelous number of degrees and hues of twilight, for here it would be dark like the black end of evening, and there would be a glow of rich, lurid brown like the light of some strange camp configuration and here for a moment the fog would be quite broken up and a haggard shaft of daylight would glance between the swirling reeds a dismal quarter of soho seen under these changing glimpses with its muddy ways and slatternly passengers and its lamps which had never been extinguished or been kindled afresh to combat the mournful reinvasion of darkness darkness seemed in the lawyer's eyes like a district of some city in a nightmare the thoughts of his mind besides were the gloomiest eye when he glanced at the companion of his drive he was conscious of some touch of that terror that the law the law officers which may at times assail the most honest as the cab drew up before the address indicated the fog lifted a little and showed him a dingy street a low French eating house, a shop for the retail of penny numbers and two penny salads, many ragged children huddled in the doorways, and many women of many different nationalities passing out, key in hand, to have a morning glass, 
and the next moment the fog settled down again upon a part as brown as umber and cut him off from the blackguardly surroundings. This was the home of Henry Jekyll's favorite, of a man who was heir to a quarter of a million sterling. An ivory-faced and silvery-haired old woman opened the door. She had an evil face, smoothed by hypocrisy, but her manners were excellent. Yes, she said, this was Mr. Hyde's, but he was not at home. He had been in that night very late, but had gone away again in less than an hour. There was nothing strange in that. His habits were very irregular, and he was often absent. For instance, it was nearly two months since she had seen him till yesterday. Very well, then. We wish to see his rooms, said the lawyer. And when the woman began to declare it was impossible... I'd better tell you who this person is, he added. This is Inspector Newcomen of Scotland Yard. A flash of audacity joy appeared on the woman's face. Ah, he is in trouble. What has he done? Mr. Utterson and the inspector exchanged glances. He don't seem a very popular character. And now, my good woman, just let me, with this gentleman, have a look about us. In the whole extent of the house, which but for the old woman remained otherwise empty, Mr. Hyde had only used a couple of rooms, but these were furnished with luxury and good taste. The plate was silver, the napery elegant, a good picture hung upon the walls, a gift, as Utterson supposed, from Henry Jekyll, who was much a connoisseur, and the carpets were many piles of agreeable color. At this moment, however, the rooms bore every mark of having been recently and hurriedly ransacked. Clothes lay about the floor, pockets inside out, lockfast drawers stood open, and the hearth lay a pile of gray ashes as though many papers had been burned. From these embers, the inspector inferred the butt end of a green checkbook, which had resisted the action of the fire but the other half of the stick was found behind the door and clinched his suspicions. The officer declared himself delighted. A visit to the bank, where several thousand pounds were found to be lying in the murderer's credit, completed his gratification. You may depend upon it, sir, he told Mr. Utterson. I have him in my hand. He must have lost his head, or he never would have left the stick, or, above all, burned the checkbook. Why, money's life to the man. We have nothing to do but wait for him at the bank and get out the handbills. This last, however, was not so easy of accomplishment. Mr. Hyde had numbered few familiars. Even the master servant maid had only seen him twice. His family could nowhere be traced. He had never been photographed, and the few who could describe him deferred widely, as common observers will. Only on one point were they agreed. That was the haunting sense of unexpressed deformity with which the fugitive impressed his beholders. So, question... 
think about it. What did that maid see from her window? Why is the police officer interested to hear that the murdered man is Mr. Carew? And where did the cane used from the murder come from? Stay tuned. Thank you.